So this sermon series that we're getting into today is one that I've been thinking about for a while. And honestly, as we gather together this morning, my heart and my hope, and part of the reason I felt like God was calling us to come back into one service together, is because I really want to see us not just have lectures and preaching and sermons over the next few weeks. I would love to see us have a real family conversation together as a congregation. And the whole conversation, for me, it goes around this question. And I've said the question the last couple of weeks. Who is it? Who is it that God wants us to be? In a culture that is secular and divided, who is it that God wants us to be in a culture that is secular and divided? Because over the last 20 months, we have seen and experienced and witnessed that there's many different ideas as to who and what Christians should be, followers of Jesus should be, in the current context of our world and the things we're walking through. And honestly, I'm, I'm less concerned, I'm trying to be less concerned with what other people think Christians should be. I'm trying to be less concerned with what uh, people who maybe are on the television or, or on the radio or online who are saying that, that, that they know what Christians should be and what Christians should look like. I feel like I've tried to take all of that in and I've tried to decipher uh, what we should be and what we should say and what we shouldn't say and what we should go after and what we should stay away from. But at some point, I just kind of threw up my hands and I said, what, why am I not going back to the scripture? And asking God, God, who do you want me to be? Who do you want us to be? Here's, I think, a little bit of the reality. I think for Christians who have lived in this context, in this culture, for a long time. It can feel like, depending on your background, in your social status, like the wheels are coming off. But so many of our friends who are here living in the U.S. from around the world that have been Christians in other contexts have a very different perspective. They know all about living as a Christian in a culture that seems very secular and divided, different. It's also how the church existed in the first century. That Christians in the first century, when we read out of this text in the New Testament. They were living out faith in a, in a culture that did not call itself Christian. It wasn't Christian at all. It was fairly divided and very different. 
And so I think for those of us who have felt this over the last 20 months and who have felt it over the last few years, that it feels like uh, things are, are, are crumbling around us a little bit and we're not sure exactly what to do, that there's some things that if we would stop and rest for a moment, we could really learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and our brothers and sisters in Christ in the text. And in this idea of asking who it is that God wants us to be and how God wants us to live, we're going to go back here. And we're going to walk together over the next five weeks through a book, a letter in the, in the, in the Bible that's labeled in our text as First Peter. Written by Peter, disciple of Jesus, Peter walking on the water, Peter, Peter denying Christ three times, Peter, that Peter, fisherman Peter, you maybe know him if you're familiar with the New Testament text and with the gospel stories. He wrote this letter and he wrote it to first century Christians. But see, when I read this letter and I, when I read who Peter wrote it to, I don't think he just wrote it to first century Christians. And I'll tell you why I think that in a moment. But we're going to read the first five verses here of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter writes this letter to a very specific group of people. And he calls them elect exiles who are spread out, that word dispersion, we could get into the history of that a little bit later, but that just means they're spread out across all these different cities and towns. So they're followers of Jesus, they're elect, that's what that's talking towards, they're followers of Jesus who are exiled, we'll talk about that word in a minute, and spread out through all of these different towns. What unites them and makes them unique is that they all have this same hope in and through Jesus Christ. And Peter addresses this group, and when he uses this term exile, he recognizes something. An exile is somebody who is living away from home. An exile is someone who is living away from home. Jesus, or Peter is writing here to both Jewish people who have began to follow Jesus Christ. And for some of them, they're literally in exile. They're not living in the town where they're from. But he's also writing to non-Jewish people living in the Roman Empire who have started to follow Jesus Christ. And for many of them, they're living in their town. This is home. 
And yet he's still calling them exiles. So why is it that Peter says, you're living at home, but you're an exile? Because anyone who is a father of Jesus Christ, anyone who calls themselves a Christian, you are living away from home right now. I don't know where you call home. I don't know what town you call home. I don't know exactly if you moved from somewhere else. Many of us in the room, we moved from a different place. Some of us in the room, you are tried and true New Englanders. You have been here uh, for generations. Your family's been here. And, and so this feels like home. But whether Boston area feels like home to you or not, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what Peter is saying to these first century Christians and what he's reminding you and I of is that even though we live here, we are living away from home. In fact, he says in these verses that we have hope, we have an inheritance, we have a promise, and right there in verse 4, he says it, that is kept in heaven for you. And I think that in today's world and culture, the beginning of this letter could easily read, to the elect exiles, to the Christians who are living away from home, in Watertown, and Belmont, and Waltham, and Billerica, and Burlington, and Wilmington. And some of you die-hard Mount Hopers, New Hampshire, that are in the room, that you could easily switch out in our day and age those towns because we live in our culture and context. For many of us, as the only believer that we know when we walk into the classroom and when we walk into work and when we walk into our neighborhood. And we don't live at home. And there's this thing that happens when we're, we're, we're living away from home. If home is eternity with Christ, and we're living away from that right now, there's this thing that all of us experience when you're away from home. And Peter talks about it in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? Well, we rejoice in the living hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All of those things that Peter has just talked about. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And for the exile, for the person, for the Christian, for the literal exile who is living away from home, there is this tension that exists that I think is right there in the verse. That we live in joy with the idea and promise of home. Yet while for now, we can find ourselves grieved by various trials. And I think as a Christian, this tension can be really difficult because why does God let us feel this? Why does God make us go through this? Why does God allow it to happen? And I have to be honest with you this morning. I think the last 20 months, For many of us, 
have been a period of being grieved by various trials. And it has not been easy. It continues not to be easy. It's happened on a national level. It's happened on a church level. I mean, church, capital C, big church. I mean, church, lowercase c, Mount Hope. And it's happened on a personal level. It's almost like the pandemic came and put this giant magnifying glass on things that were there but we were kind of all dealing with. And then pandemic and quarantine and isolation came and put the giant magnifying glass on so many different things. And in some ways it was a good thing because there were things that we had to start talking about and start moving with and start dealing with that needed to be brought to the surface. But that's not without its grievous trials and struggle and pain. And I may forget a few here, and so you can help me remember. But here's a few that I remember. We have a culture that is incredibly divided politically. On the national level, Racial reconciliation and the reality of, of that and the fact that the work is so far from done, it rose to the surface. How we would deal with a pandemic has risen to the surface and caused all sorts of trial. On a church level, as your pastor, These have certainly been some of the hardest decisions that, that we've ever had to make as your pastors. And I can promise you that every time we had to make a decision over the last 20 months, whether to meet or not meet, masks, no masks, do we talk about vaccines? Do we not talk about vaccines? How much do we talk about racial reconciliation? How little do we talk about racial reconciliation? How much do we talk about the election? How little do we talk about the election? Every one of those decisions, we went to the Lord and we asked God what he wanted us to do. And I will tell you that part of the challenge of being a pastor during this time was we're trying to figure it out ourselves. Next, pack, next pandemic, I promise you, I'm going to be a way better pastor. Sometimes we said things. People got really upset that we said it. Sometimes we didn't say things. People got really upset that we didn't say it. It was hard. It still is. I think there's different categories as we try to come back together in fellowship and community.
There's those of us that are ready to come back. It's great to see you. There's those of us that just aren't ready yet, and that's fine. I talked to two families this week that have underlying health conditions, and they're like, Pastor, we saw your video that there's one service, but we're still not ready. That's fine. We're glad for you too as you watch us online. But there's another group that's gone. They left. And that's hard. Like years and years of relationship. And I'm not saying that to, to belittle or, or anyone. All I'm saying is that it's part of the grievous trial that I think we've felt. And so you question that, don't you? I mean, don't you do that in your life? When you make a response and you feel like it's the right thing to do and God wants you to do it, and then some people are happy and some people are upset, you go back and you start, you wonder, did I do the right thing? Have I handled this appropriately? And all of that is part of me coming back to Scripture and saying, okay, God, who is it that you want us to be? Because I know I can't be all things to everybody. You know, on a personal level, I think the challenges that we have, marriages and mental health, physical health, I mean, that magnifying glass just brought it to the surface. So many parents that I've talked to whose teenagers and college students over the last two years because they were ripped away from context and community and the struggles that have ensued and other, other adults, uh, single adults, one person in particular that I've talked to over the last 20 months, the, the difficulty of living in isolation as a single person. And what that does to you emotionally and mentally And here's my question. Why? Why does God let it happen? When you're away from home, things happen that remind you that you're away from home. I had this weird thing happen recently where Boston became the place I lived longer than anywhere else in my life. For a long time, I was away from home, and then somehow subtly through the two decades that I've lived here, this became home, and the places I used to live, now when I go there, I feel like I'm away from home. So I grew up in the Midwest, and then I came here to Boston. I remember the one thing that stuck out to me almost immediately was I moved here pre-GPS. I mean, I remember what a blessing the first time I got one of those Garmin things that you could suction cup to your windshield. What a great thing that was, because when I moved here, all it was was MapQuest directions, and we think texting while we're driving is difficult. Do you remember? remember when you'd print out map quest directions and you'd slam them on the horn like in your wheel and you'd be driving like this trying to find out where you were going like that's how we had to get around when I first moved here and I moved here and I come from a world of squares every city I ever spent time in is built with squares and and I, when I first moved to the north shore and I missed a turn I thought to myself I'll go around the block and 45 minutes later, I saw a sign that said, welcome to New Hampshire. And I knew this place was different. There's no going around the block here. I remember when I was a freshman in college. And I, 
I moved uh, from the city of Omaha where I grew up, which I know is not Boston, but it's still like seven or 800,000 people. It's a small city. It's, I've never lived on a farm. I've never worked on a farm. So I, I know there's this picture of Nebraska we get. But I grew up in a neighborhood. And I went to school, though, in rural Iowa. I mean, a town of 2,000 people. And in like October, I woke up in my dorm room and there was this smell. And I was like, what is this smell? And I searched our dorm room trying to figure out what was going on. And then I walked into the hallway of my dorm and the smell persisted. And I walked through the whole dorm and I I thought to myself, what is going on in this dorm? Like, what has someone left here? Where has an animal gone and died? And then I walked outside and it was the same exact smell outside and it permeated everything. And I finally asked someone, I said, what is that smell? And some of you people are laughing to yourself because you know exactly what it is. And they said, oh, it's harvest. That's the smell of money. We cut the crops down and then we spread manure all over the fields. And that's what you smell. You smell money. It was the worst smell I've ever smelt in my life. And all it was was this giant reminder. Every single fall, you're not home. You're not home. And every time we experience these trials, it's this reminder. You're not home. You're not home. You got a card here. I'm not going to ask you to share this with anybody. This is you. If you don't have a card, our ushers will will gladly give you one and a pen. I'd just like you to write down. I'm going to give you a minute to do this. For you, what's happened in the last 20 months that you would count as a grievous trial? What's happening right now? that you would count as a grievous trial. I just want you to take a moment and jot it down. You're not showing this to anyone. You can rip it up and throw it away after the service. We're not gonna share out loud. But in your family, in your context, in your life, And as you write that down, I'd ask you just to look at it. Because the question is why? Why did God let these Christians in the first century go through grievous trials? And why does he let it happen to us? On the backside, on the backside of this card, I'd like you to write 1 Peter 1.7. 1 Peter 1.7. In 1 Peter 1.7, Peter says this. He says that you've been, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, so that, 
the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, every time that we walk through a grievous trial, every time we're reminded that we live here, but it's not yet our home, Peter is reminding you and me that we have an opportunity in that moment. And that opportunity is either to grow in our faith. In fact, it, he says that your faith, it's, it's, it's more precious than gold. I always read that verse, that our faith, your faith is like gold, which is refined by fire or tested by fire. But he actually says, I realized this time around, that it's more precious than gold. That yes, gold is tested by fire and the impurities are knocked off and what you have remains pure. But he says it perishes, it dies. Your faith is tested in the trial. And God refines it and makes it better and more pure if we will lean in. And that faith lasts, not just today and not tomorrow, but forever. And as we think about this question, who does God want us to be? I'm just going to suggest one more thing to you this morning. And then Andrew's going to come and we're going to have a, a conversation I think historically and in our context, our cultural context today, we see Christians react to the reality of the hope that we have in Christ and yet the reality of the things that we walk through in this world. We see Christians react in, and I'll just, I'll, I'm gonna go with three broad categories and maybe you can help me think of more, but I've been able to think through and as I've done reading and I've been like three broad categories of how we react. And, and I think that, that the Bible is actually calling us to react in a different way. But see, I think some of us, when we, we think about dealing with these trials and these hardships, some of us fall into what I'll call hopeless compromise. That we forget that home is still coming. Perfect home is still on its way. And so through the trial and through the testing and through the difficulty, we just give up on that and make this home. Give up on how God calls us to live. Get up, give up on believing what he calls us to believe and we just assimilate into how everyone else is living. Some of us withdraw into what I would call fearful isolation. Where we realize that this is our home away from home, but because we don't want to compromise, we decide to make a home away from home, away from home. And we withdraw from anything around us that's not Christian. But here we lose the hope of what God wants to do in and through us today. The hope of what God wants to do in this world now. Some of us fall into what I'm calling restless revolt. Where we see what's happening and we see a culture that's walking away. 
and we're going to fix it. We forget that the hope of, of tomorrow frees us up to live with joy today. And that we fear God and not people. And that ultimately the work of restoration is God's work. Not ours. See, I think there's something that God is calling you and I to. That he models for us throughout scripture. And if we were to turn back hundreds of years before Peter wrote to the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah chapter 29, which many of you are familiar with. It's everyone's, so many people's favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. You've got it tattooed somewhere on you or you have it on a note card somewhere. <laughs> but earlier in that verse, Jesus is talking to the Israelites, his people who are living in exile in Babylon. Babylon, bad news, bad people. And in Jeremiah 29, what he's doing is he's actually telling his people how they're to live in exile. And look at verse 4. It'll be on the screens here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, think about that word, who I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he call them to do? Build houses. And live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find welfare. See, God calls his people, he calls you and me in the city in which we find ourselves in exile to live among the people and to continue to increase in number those of us who call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ and to pray for the welfare of the city can't help but wonder in all of our fighting to elect certain people and pass laws in our city, how much of us are really praying for our city? Because that's actually what God tells us to do. It's a model of faithful engagement God calls us to. Faithful in that we do not compromise the life that God calls us to live, but engagement, and that we find ways to purposefully and with hope engage people around us. See, 1 Peter, for the New Testament church, he says it very simply in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. He gives us four things. And over the next four weeks, these are the things we're going to talk about. And like I said, Andrew and I are about to have a short conversation. In future weeks, it'll be a longer conversation after we set this up with different people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. You want to know the topics for the next four weeks? Here they are. 
Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Living in first century Rome, a very secular context, divided world, this is how Peter tells the Christians to live. It's how God calls, tells us to live. It's right there in the text. And we're going to ask ourselves, what does this mean? How do we do this faithfully? Not so that we compromise who God calls us to be and what he calls us to do. Not that we lose hope into where our real hope lies, in the blood of Jesus Christ and through him. But yet does these things well. Honors everybody. Loves the church, you could read there. Fears God. And honors the emperor. I'm going to invite Andrew up, and Andrew's going to come. And Andrew, I don't know if you got any texts yet this morning, but we have a couple of things that we want to talk about. And I asked Andrew to ask a couple of questions, if he had them, on anything that, that seemed unclear while I was talking there. And so my guess is Andrew has a whole oh, pile a of questions oh, yeah. based on that, <laughs> that mandate. But if you don't know Andrew, Andrew is on staff here at the church Andrew is the director of community life and the leader of the well ministry for our young adults. Co-leader. Co-leader of the well with Rosemary Barbarian. Thank you for that correction. Appreciate that. See, I knew he was the perfect moderator. No problem. Just leaning into me. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'd love to just start. In, in, okay, we've got the number up there. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to send them through. Um, if we don't get them today, get to them today. We'd love to get to them uh, this week on Tuesday. Uh, but I wanted to start off because... A lot of us are very used to the Gospel of Luke because we've spent basically the entire year there, and uh, it's a pretty quick pivot to uh, not only switch to one service, but also to switch to a brand new book of the Bible. I know this has been something that's been on your mind a lot, uh, especially through sabbatical, and I was just wondering if you can give just a, a little bit of explanation as to uh, how you came to First Peter and maybe some of the other influences and voices that you've been listening to as we seek to answer this question together, who is God calling us to be in a secular and divided world? Yeah, so I'll mention, um, I mean, the, the way I came to this is I really feel like God put it on my heart. I don't know how else to, to really describe that, is I feel like this is what God wanted us to talk about. If you would like to read some books on, on this idea and where our sermon series is going, if you would like a couple other resources, there's two books that I would recommend. Well, there's more than two, but here's, the, here's who, what I would say the top two are. One is called Wisdom from Babylon by a gentleman named Gordon Smith, who is a seminary professor in Canada. And uh, the context in Canada is different than the United States. And he writes out of that context and it's super helpful. I love the title Wisdom from Babylon. The Israelites lived in Babylon. Daniel, remember Daniel in the lion's den? Lived in Babylon in Persia. Peter, later in this text, will use the term Babylon interchangeably with Rome. So he's telling the people something. Like, I think Rome is Babylon. I think sometimes as Christians in the U.S., we live as if we are part of Jerusalem and it's our job to protect it. But I think the truth is we live in Babylon and we better figure out how God calls us to live in that sort of context. 
That's what I believe and I, I'm, I'm convinced of. So Wisdom from Babylon, I think, is a great book. Faithful Presence by David Fitch is another really helpful book. Um, I would say anything by David Fitch is helpful, but that book in particular you're going to hear about um, over the next few weeks. I would highly encourage the church. It takes 15 minutes to read the book of 1 Peter if you go fairly slowly. And if you're not a reader, uh, every app has an audio version. Please listen to this book. Start to finish uh, at some point or read it uh, over the next couple weeks. That's great. And uh, I, I wanted to ask as one question that I, I um, imagine some of us might have, something that I've been trying to think through the difference. Um, and Angie, I don't know if you can put up the slide that had the four different dispositions, the, the, uh, the hopeless, uh, hopeless compromise, hopeless compromise, and yeah. then, yeah, those there. Uh, I think there's kind of a, a, a nuanced difference between restless revolt and faithful engagement. Both of those we, as, as exiles, people who live in this community but away from home, we, we ourselves are from a different place as followers of Jesus, but we're, we are, in both instances, engaging with the culture. And I think there's a subtle difference between, how, maybe, maybe the question is, how do I know if I'm engaging with the culture in a faithful way or if I am being more of a restless revolutionist? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good question. And I'll just say, I mean, I came up with these terms, and they may need to be switched or made better, and so we could talk through that, and there's probably better ways to make them, but this is where I landed for this morning. When I think about restless revolt versus faithful engagement, which is what I'm saying I think God is calling us to, the easiest way I can explain the difference in my mind is that when we're caught in restless revolt, we try to go, we try to change people's heart by changing the law. And we think that if we can go morality first and law first, that we'll change people's hearts. And I think what we miss is that the entire context of Scripture tells us that doesn't work. Because God in the Old Testament went law first, and it didn't change the people's hearts. So then he sends Christ, and he says very explicitly, I'm going to go heart first. I'm going to change your heart. And then as your heart changes toward me, then you will begin to live the life that I've called you to live. And in our, I think our fear as Christians and trying to live in a, in a context that isn't always very Christian, we think, well, well, we'll just change the law and then we'll get people, we'll like change people's hearts. And so we come together and we try to change the law and then we all speed home because we don't realize, we realize that the law doesn't change anyone's activity. And, and, and we, miss, we miss what God is really calling us to which is that we are supposed to go after individuals' hearts and that law is downstream from the heart of a, a community or a culture or a nation. And so if you, we want to see the law change, which I do want to see the law reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, people's hearts need to change first. To have Christian culture, you have to have more Christians. And the only way to have more Christians is to have people's hearts change through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in all of our efforts to try and get the law correct, we better be making equal effort to deal with the hearts of neighbors and friends and relatives and people if we actually want to see lasting impact over long term. Or even a, even a greater effort. A greater uh, effort. I, I, think, I, I think about this difference in terms of the root of an issue and the fruit of an issue. Uh, and sometimes we can, I can catch myself chasing after the fruit of an issue. I see, you know, uh, a problem, 
and I, you know, I see the fruit of that problem. My house is very messy, and so I will try and deal with the, the, the fruit of it. I'll put things back where they go and, and make everything clean. And uh, what I don't realize is that I'm not dealing with the root of the problem, which is that when I'm done with something, I don't put it away. I just put it where, wherever I am when I'm done with it. And so uh, as, a, as a person who's trying to engage faithfully, not just with my living room, but with the entire community, I want to start to look at the root of things. I want to start to look at what's beneath the surface, what's uh, what, you know, what in this person's heart or, or in this community's heart is leading to this kind of fruit. And let's start to interact on that level. I think that's a great way for us as a family to start uh, interacting faithfully, engaging faithfully with the community around us. Um, I ha- we have some great questions here. Um, I-, I wanted to see if uh, we could talk at all about, um, oh geez, I just lost it. Uh, the how um, the political divide uh, maybe made it into the church. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, and and you you did a great job at the beginning of the service talking about how uh, we really tried whenever we had decisions to make, we really tried to seek God. I think one thing that that we can say, I know I can say, in the decisions that we made with the well, our young adult ministry, is we didn't get them all right. We didn't get them all right. We tried. We tried our best, but we're going through this the same, you know, for the first time as well. We didn't get them all right. But maybe we can just talk for a minute about um, how did Christians become so politically divided? Yeah, let me give you the definitive answer real quick. All right. <laughs> I'm sure we're all excited to hear. We have 30 seconds left. I, so I will say this. I think that's an excellent question. And I think um, when we hit honor the emperor... I am prepared to make a, a far better statement and answer to that, to that question. I'll say this right now. I think all of us have to look at our lives and make sure that our faith in Jesus Christ is the seat of our identity. That that is where we find our deepest sense of identity and our deepest connection with brothers and sisters in Christ. We put a lot of adjectives before Christians when we decide ourselves, when we describe ourselves. I'm a progressive Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm a, I'm a, or we use racial terms before Christian. It's, in my opinion, it's the wrong adjective first. Like I'm a follower of Jesus who is. I'm a follower of Jesus. It, it, I think all of us have to make sure, and specifically when we talk about like political politics within the United States, that faith in Jesus Christ is first, and that that is how we are defining ourselves, and also that we do not break fellowship too quickly with our brother and sister in Christ. One of the saddest things to me over the last 20 months are the things that we're willing to break fellowship over in the church. We're going to talk about this more in Love the Brotherhood, but Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one in John 17. Why? So that, here's this phrase again, so that, so that the world may know that you have sent me, he said to his father. The way the world knows that you have sent me is that the church is unified and is one. And when we divide over things that aren't Christ and the truth of who he is and his death and resurrection, I know it's not the church that's winning. And I know that prayer is going unanswered and unfulfilled. 
And so we're going to talk more about this on the Honor the Emperor Week. It's an excellent question. It deserves a lot more than that. But I would say those two things. Let's make sure that the seat of our identity is Christ. And let's make sure um, that we're, if we're dividing, we're dividing over things that are worth dividing over. And I'll just add to that. I think uh, whenever things from the culture leak into the church, uh, I think it's uh, almost always a case of us forgetting that we are exiles. Almost a case of like, we've just been, you know, in this place for so long, we, we start to, you know, that those influences start to, to reach in. And, and so we forget sometimes that we're exiles. And you jumped over uh, this verse in chapter one that I think uh, may be a great way for us because somebody also said, hey, what are we going to do beyond talking about this? You know, what, what if we all say amen, but then we go home and don't change it? And I think a great first step for us, uh, just to think about, to, to prepare ourselves for the next four weeks as we have this conversation together, is chapter 1, verse 13. As, as P- Peter kind of uses this first chapter to build up to what he says in chapter 2, and in, in one thirteen he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So part of it is just getting up every day, being get, like just getting in the zone, preparing your mind for action, saying, I'm an exile here, but I'm gonna engage faithfully with this culture. And he also says to set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. He's to remind you, like, we're not here without hope. We're not here without a promise for a future, like Jeremiah 29, 11. We're not here uh, just to suffer for no reason, but there's something at the end of this. And there's something that God is even doing through this all. And then the, the third thing that he says, there's to be self-controlled, that there are going to be times where we're going to be tempted to, to, to act as, as a person who is home. We're going to be tempted to act as somebody who is not an exile. And Peter says, be self-controlled. In those times where you have that impulse, you've got to show some restraint because that's not who you are. That's not who we are as followers of Jesus. So as we go into these next four weeks, I would encourage all of us to have those three attitudes, to, to uh, prepare our minds for action every single day, to act self-controlled when our impulses are to, to you know, act not as exiles, and to set our hope really on what God is doing in us and through us. Here's the last thing I'll say. Thank you, Andrew, for that. I think that's absolutely true. We're not saying that God's saying, hey, you're going to heaven one day, so just sit around and wait, that there's something for us to do now. Here's what I'll say. There's probably more questions right now. Some of you are sitting here. You really don't like where this sermon series is going. Some of you are pretty sure you disagree, you're, dis- you're going to disagree with a lot of what's said over the next four weeks. Here's my ask for you. Keep coming. Let's be the community. Ask tough questions. If you don't text, write it on a card and drop it in the box. We'll deal with it. But let's not run away from each other, assuming that we're so different in Christ that we can no longer worship together. Let's deal with it as a family deals with it. And let's talk it through and see what God would have us do. I'm going to ask you to stand with us. And I know we've gone, we've gone a little bit over and so I'm going to close us in prayer this morning, and, uh, and then uh, I know if you're, if you're like me, losing one more song of worship from our fantastic worship team is a real loss, but maybe we'll, we'll do an extra song next week. But I know we have, we have run over a little bit. 
Thanks for being in church this morning. It's good to be together as the community of faith. And we're going to keep talking about this. What does it look like to live in faithful engagement the way God calls us to? I honestly believe that the right answer is in the room. And we'll find it as we engage this together. God, I thank you for the family of faith that's here. God, I pray for the person that's in the room that doesn't call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would come to know the hope that comes through Jesus. The truth of what we're talking about. They would begin to rejoice in the, in the knowledge of who Jesus is and the relationship that that brings. God, I pray that as we seek your truth, that you will come and you will speak to us in the coming weeks. That we wouldn't, as just the person just said who texted in, that we wouldn't just talk about these things and change nothing. But God, that we would live differently as your Holy Spirit speaks and as you move among us, that we would live differently for your glory. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.